0: Please pray with me. Lord, it's a remarkable thing that you speak, that you make your will known through your word, you make your character known, and most supremely, you have made these things known through the person of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that in the preaching of the word, he would be exalted. Lord, that we would leave here as those um, who have met with him, who have had the gospel. Um, impress deeply upon our hearts. Lord, for those of us who know you and put our faith in you, Lord, would you um, grow us in the gospel? Um, Lord, for those of us who are here curious, maybe even skeptical, uh, Jesus, would you make a home in their hearts uh, to the end that um, we would receive the good gifts of God and that in so receiving them, we would be those who are glad to give them away. And loving this city and even the world through the through the gospel of Jesus. So bless this time. We pray in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. I'm going to change the angle. I feel like I'm over. Here. All right. Many many of you will know the name Karl Barth. Um, he's arguably the most famous theologian of the 20th century. Um, he was a prolific scholar. Among his other achievements was the production of his Church Dogmatics, which uh, depending on which publisher you go with, you know, is anywhere from like 15 to 30 volumes. Um, You know, I checked Amazon, it it, it weighs around 50 pounds if you were going to order one. And, you know, toward the end of his life, uh, Karl Barth came to the the United States and gave some lectures. He ended up at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And at the end of the lecture, uh, there was a Q&A and, you know, uh, seminary student. Asked him, you know, what a lot of seminary students do, a goofy question. And they said, you know, um, can you summarize your life's work for us? Maybe in one or two sentences. You know, and this is a guy, again, who, in addition to all of that, you know, had had been in, in scholarship for 50 years. You know, written a lot of articles, written a lot of other books, taught a lot of classes. And he heard that question, he thought for a second, and he replied, you know, in his thick German accent, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, you know, we've hit a little bit of a turning point in Romans as we've gotten into chapter 12, where, you know, I think we kind of have to catch our breath and, and take in for a second the previous 11 chapters in which Paul explicates in the most majestic, thoroughgoing fashion of any place in the Bible the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, he has told us in chapters one through three, of the universal need of salvation. In chapters three and four, he's shown how God has given that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and justifying his people before him. In chapters five and eight, five through eight, he lays out kind of the fruits of that salvation, the fruits of justification, so that we can see that by faith, we actually secure a freedom, a newfound freedom, freedom from the wrath of God, freedom from bondage to sin, freedom from the burdens of the law. Freedom from even death itself. And then in the last three or four chapters, in 9 through 11, he explains the scope of that salvation, that it is not given to just one ethnic group, but it's given to everybody, all kinds of people. Not just to the Jewish people, but, but to all kinds of people all around the world. And, you know, that's kind of a lot to take in. And yet, as Bart, did, as Bart kind of did with his work, Paul sums all of that up at the beginning of this chapter, in just a few words. And, and those words are, by the mercies of God. You know, those words, I think, are a pretty fair summary of the previous 11 chapters. They, they, they explicate what has come before, and they set the stage for what Paul is about to say. They connect, in other words, what God has done in salvation with how those who have been saved are now to live. Paul anchors his appeal to those who have put their faith in Christ on the basis of this great gospel in view of God's mercies that they might live with a present, ongoing outlook that is shaped by the mercy of God in Christ. And I think it's absolutely critical we see the order of that. It's not, you know, Paul doesn't say, here's how you ought to live in order that you might secure God's mercies. It is God's mercies have been secured for you in Christ, and now there are implications for how you ought to live. So we're picking up in verse 9 in which Paul gives three commands in quick succession. Uh, he says, let love be genuine, hate evil, and cling to what is good. And, you know, as different as all those commands look, they're, they're actually tightly linked, and they determine the rest, of w- the rest of the commands that follow. But they're tightly linked in this way. They all have to do with love and truth. And and I just want to point out, I think that's pretty striking because we very often separate the two, right? I mean, entire church traditions and denominations tend to cohere around one at the cost of the other, I think. I mean, if if, if you're from a theologically conservative tradition, you're probably pretty big on, you know, the proclamation of truth, but probably pretty weak on applying it with some love, right? If you're from kind of the theologically liberal tradition... You know, you're probably pretty big on the love thing, but maybe at the cost of some biblical truth. But, you know, as John Stott put it, the problem is that love without truth is too soft, and truth without love is too hard. And the gospel never divorces the two. It is a fulsome expression of both, in equal measure, love and truth. And because that's true of the gospel... It must be true of how Christians relate to each other. So Paul begins with this command that love must be genuine. The love of a Christian must be, in other words, true to who we are as those who have been justified by grace through faith. So what that means is is that genuine love isn't so much a matter of how you feel. it's, It's mainly a matter of not being a phony. The word here, in fact, genuine, means unhypocritical. Um, Christian love, uh, Paul wants us to wants us to know is, is not must not be a, a, a hypocritical love. Uh, there's a French philosopher, and I'm not even going to try to say his name, but he said this: <laughs> hypocrisy is a tribute. Vice pays to virtue. Hypocrisy is a tribute. Vice pays to virtue. You know, and for me, the phrase that embodies you know hypocritical, just disingenuous love is the phrase, bless their heart. (laughs) You know, when I hear that, and you know, I'm I'm from the southern part of the country, okay, and so maybe you don't relate as as much as I do. Maybe this isn't as big a trigger. But when I hear that, I'm bracing myself. I'm bracing myself because I know something nasty is about to be said about somebody. (laughs) You know, I mean, it sounds great on the heart of it, you know, I want my heart to be blessed, I love the idea that there's people out there who say they want my heart to be blessed. But, but, you know, in reality, what does it become? It's become a code, right? It's a way of maintaining a facade, you know, so that I can communicate to you, for starters, that I'm a really good person. You know, I'm not a bad person. And, and, you know, I'm going to sort of express some measure of concern for the person I'm about to gossip about. Um, But, you know, now that that's out of the way, I'm going to rip them to shreds and I'm going to secretly cherish their misery that you and I both know they deserve, right? That kind of all that goes into bless their heart, right? But genuine love, you know, holds the love of Jesus close. It lives by that love. It comes from the heart that has, has, hasn't stopped reckoning with, you know, reckoning with and relying on the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved me. It's never stopped doing that. Genuine love comes from the heart That's been, you know, on the one hand, humbled by the reality of of its own sin so that you can never look at someone and go, you know, your struggles are ridiculous. I despise you for them. Because you know those struggles. You know, at the same time, genuine love is a heart that's been fortified by the love of God to us in Christ so that we can be boldly truthful in our relationships, right? So, you know, truth and love aren't divorced. They're like an alloy, like two metals that come together that make a stronger metal so that... By relying on the gospel, you become this funny alloy of a person. You're, you're boldly humble, you're humbly bold. You know, over the years, I've gotten into American Idol on and off. Um, you know, um, I rarely, but I have to say, I rarely get past the audition phase. Um, that, to me, is the best part. And after that, it's all cheesy covers and bad choreography. But, um, you know, the real drama's in the auditions, Right? Um, where people, you know, come into a room with judges before them, and they just kind of lay themselves bare, you know, about, you know, with their singing skills. And there's basically kind of two kinds of people that go in front of the judges, right? There's, you know, on the one hand, there's these, these diamonds in the rough, you know, and they come in, and you can kind of tell they're insecure. Maybe they've been cajoled, you know, to be there. They're, they're, you know, they might think they're not very good. They're not making eye contact, and then they begin to sing. You know, and it's like the judges start looking at each other like, this is unbelievable. This person's so talented, you know. Um, The beauty's unveiled, right? But then there's another kind of person. (laughs) You know, and this is the person who kind of struts in there, you know. And they're like, yeah, whatever, Lionel Richie and whoever else is in front of me. You know, I'm about to blow you away with my mad vocal skills, you know. Then they begin to sing and it turns out they're terrible. And the judges are looking at each other going, you know, and sometimes they just go, wait, just stop. We can't listen to this anymore. You know, and those, those look like um, polar opposite kinds of people, but, but as different as they are, what makes, I think, the one arrogant and the other insecure is that neither has been the subject of genuine love, at least in that area of life. You know, n- neither has been subject to bold humility and humble boldness, um, for both, there's been a paucity of both truth and love. So the arrogant person needs to be loved with the truth that, you know, you've got a lot of things going for you, but singing is not one of them. You know, and the insecure person needs to be told that, in fact, you're more beautiful than you realized. You know, you have a great gift, and you shouldn't be insecure about it. You know, genuine love does that, right? It, it, it both affirms and challenges. It affirms truthfully what is beautiful about you, even as it addresses tenderly what's broken about you, right? And that is at the heart of the gospel. In fact, you can't become a Christian without having been on the receiving end of that, right? Without, without knowing by the love of God, which again is both fully truthful and fully, f- fully loving, that I'm far more broken by my sin than I ever realized, but I know at the same time I'm far more beloved and beautiful in God's sight than I ever dreamed, you know, so that's what Paul's getting at. Love must be genuine um, because that's our story, um, and if you're if you're a Christian, because that's your story, you know that is how that is who we are as followers of Christ. That's how we relate. It's true of how we've been loved, so it must translate into our love for others. Right? Otherwise, otherwise we're hypocrites. So while that first command is really anchored in what is objectively true about who we are as Christian, the next two commands are anchored in what's true about God's will for Christians, how we kind of live that out. And and I've I've said, you know, there are two commands, but really they're one. You know, they're two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, Christians are called to hate what is evil, and they're also at the same time called to cling to what is good. Um, Now, you know, you might be reading this verse and go, why does Paul do this? You know, why does he have to put in love and hate? You know, why not just Lennon-McCartney this thing and say all you need is love, right? Um, well, I think it's because Paul understands, you know, the true nature of love. Um, that is not this sort of blanched, lifeless, you know, inept, monolithic affection, right? It is alive. It's got some blood pumping through it. It has, um, so, you know, so it can never be said that you simply love something without on the other side of that, you actually hating something. I think that's always true. Wherever there exists great affection, there exists at the very same time and at least to the same degree, great aversion. You know, if, you, if, you're, a lover of that, if you're a lover of great art, what do you hate? You hate bad art, right? If you're you know, if you're a lover of great film, nothing will upset you more than dropping 12 bucks on a bad movie that just ate two hours of your life, right? Um, if you have sipped, you know, a great wine, you know, two buck Chuck is odious to you, right? If you love tolerance, what do you hate? You hate intolerance. If you love love, what do you hate? You hate hate, right? Um, because that's true, you know, I mean, on the, on, on the side of great affection is always great aversion. And because that's true, you know, it's, it's, it's why we ache and are frankly angered when we see those whom we love greatly being torn up by bad life choices, by, by bad relationships, right? Why do, you, why do you feel that so intensely? Because your love for them is intense. Your hatred for them, for what is undoing them, is just as intense. So when Paul says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good, he's contending with, you know, with what it means that love would be genuine. He's still talking about the same thing. And and I want you to notice what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say genuinely love those whom you feel are genuinely lovable. He doesn't say that. He simply says in the most sweeping way, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine to your sweet grandma who sends you a card on your birthday with a dollar in it? And let love be genuine to the guy who walks his dog around your neighborhood and never picks up after him, right? Let love be genuine to all those people. And the sweeping nature of that command, I think presents us with an incredible dilemma, doesn't it? I mean, again, we've, we've just said, if love is to be genuine, that is to say, if it's to be unhypocritical, you know, it, it is to be that. If that's true, how can I possibly genuinely love someone who's so dang unlovable? how do i get there and and in fact you know in asking me to do that aren't you encouraging the hypocrisy well i think in order to begin to get at that question to begin to answer it i think we have to do some hard self-examination on what is going on in our hearts when we determine someone is unlovable you know at the root of finding a person unlovable i think is a deep heart conviction that there are conditions that must be met to become worthy of my love. You know, um, some people meet the conditions, some people don't. So, you know, it may be that uh, they, you don't like their, you know, that their politics aren't as righteous as yours and, and, and they have now become unlovable. It may be that you don't like their sense of humor. It may be that you don't like what part of the country they're from. Maybe they've done, maybe you've got some history and they've done you wrong. Yeah, maybe they've got too many tattoos, maybe not enough tattoos for you. Um, But in some little corner of the heart, there's a little courtroom, and the gavel has come down and has rendered a verdict, unlovable. It's proclaimed, you know, unworthy of my affection. So the question is, how on earth, you know, can you, um, because the, the command is sweeping, let love be genuine, how can that verdict possibly be overturned in my heart? Well, I think we have to go back and again remember that genuine love is not born out of fundamentally my feelings, but it's born out of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ objectively. So, you know, I put on my gospel glasses, right? I take another view. I take another look at myself. I take another look at these people that I have found unlovable. I look at the world and my life in view of God's mercies, and in doing that, I, do some, I attain gospel remembrance. I remember the mercy that came my way, the grace that came my way, undeserving. I get gospel refreshing. I get a new gospel reliance. I remember that I was loved not in my loveliness, but in my loathsomeness. And that, once you begin to apprehend that and grasp it, will actually soften your heart. It'll crush that little courtroom, you know, and it'll make your heart... It's like the Grinch. You know, your heart's two sizes too small. (laughs) The gospel makes it the right size. gives you sympathies toward those who are struggling. It reminds you that that you are no different. It actually forms solidarity between you and other sinners because you know better than anybody else what it's like to be loved in all your unloveliness. So in view of God's mercies, I remember that Jesus' love for me was so great, you know, that he was willingly afflicted willingly tortured willingly killed willingly giving up his life in order that he might take me to himself as a friend as a son as a daughter you know once you gain that apprehension once you begin to look at yourself in the world in view of god's mercies it makes things like dying to your pride and sacrificing a little time and putting in a little effort seem pretty insignificant in light of the ge- grace that's been given, right? It'll mess you up, but I think in a good way. So I think it's, it's worth considering what happens when Christians uh, lose grasp of this, lose grasp of the gospel, when, when we fail to see others and ourselves in view of God's mercies. And I think it, you know, what happens relationally is, um, you know, we almost will certainly lapse into one or two relational postures, if not both. Um, you know, I think we become fakers... And I think we become curators relationally. Um, on the one hand, when we lose sight of the love of God toward us, we fake love towards others. You know, we, we begin to even convince ourselves that my niceness, that my, my um, manners, my, you know, relational skills and kind of navigating um, you know, the world um, is actual love. You know, we might even, you know, even as we harbor grudges in our hearts. You know, I, had a, I have a great I've been very fortunate to have a great pastoral mentor in my life, and he was, we were in a car one time, we were driving to Presbytery, and he asked me, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen to you as a pastor? You know, I'm a young pastor at this time. So I just immediately go to all the scandalous stuff. I'm like, I don't know, adultery? Um, he's like, no, nah, that's not it. I'm like, uh, stealing all the church's money? Nope, that's not it. know, I'm just going down all the things I can think of, you know, um. And, you know, and I'm finally like, man, why don't, you tell, why don't you tell me? And he said, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you would have an appearance of godliness while denying its power. That's the worst. All the other stuff can be handled, but that's the worst. You know, on the other hand, you know, we can become fakers, and pastors are famous for that. You know, and it's because, I think, that we become very comfortable as exporters of the gospel. It's the stuff you guys need to know. But we've stopped long ago imbibing it for ourselves. Stopped long ago thinking and knowing our own story, you know, which is critical to sharing the story, to loving you guys, right? loving each other. But we can become fakers. On the other hand, we can become relational curators, which is simply to say you know, we kind of collect people. And we, you know, we sort of operate out of who's worthy of the love, and then we sort of bring those people in. We, we decide who's worthy. We push away those who aren't worthy, you know? Um, so, you know, we can, again, become a little bit of both, fake curators. Um, so that's what happens when we lose sight. And in the next, you know, in the next seven verses, Paul gives us this kind of drinking from a fire hose series of exhortations. Um, depending on how you tally them up, there's either, you know, 12 or 13 um, each of them, though, is connected, I think, to this first verse in our, in our passage, each connected to letting love be genuine, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good. Each and every one of them connect to what it means to love others in view of God's mercies. And I, and I think, I mean, I've tried to get my head around them this week. I put them into kind of four broader categories, which is to say that loving others in view of God's mercies, I think, has these sort of four qualities, Uh, First, it's deeply connected. Secondly, it dies to the self. Thirdly, it's deeply devoted. And finally, it's dynamic. First, gospel love is deeply connected. In verse 10, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. He uses a term there that uh, describes family relations. Um, You know, to be a Christian, in other words, is not simply to have a personal relationship with Jesus, it is to enter into a familial relationship with all of Jesus' people. As one who's been born again, as one who's been, what, adopted into Christ. It's all family language. What God is our Father. His brothers and sisters in the faith, sharing in the same spirit. So, we're, you know, Christians are, are connected as family. And, you know, sometimes family bonds are precious. Sometimes they're painful. But whatever they are, they're permanent, Right? You know, um, I remember when I was pastoring in Kerrville, Texas, we had a guy show up at church, and he'd moved there from uh, California. So I was like, hey, what brought you to? Brought you from California to Kerrville, Texas, you know? And he goes, well, family brought me here. I go, oh, you've got family in Kerrville. He goes, no, they're all in California. (laughs) Sometimes it's painful, right? Sometimes it pushes you away. You can move away. You can adopt a a different lifestyle, you can change your name, but the reality is the bonds are there. You'll always have your dad. That person will always be your brother or your mom, you know? But because of God's mercies, Christian love is a devoted love, right? Uh, The bonds are there, and, and we take them seriously. You know, it's because we haven't curated the friends. We've actually been connected to the body of Christ, and that's compelling and um, because of that, Christian love must be a devoted love, which means necessarily what follows is that it's a love that dies to self. Uh, you see this quality in this, in this command to outdo one another in showing honor, or as some translations put it, to honor one another above yourself. Um, to honor someone is basically to recognize, you know, you have immense worth. Um, you know, nearly sacred worth. Uh, you know, Paul's tapping into a a deep biblical truth here that human beings are made in the image of God, which which is is profound, right? Human beings don't earn their worth. They are inherently worthy because they um, bear God's image. C.S. Lewis said that apart from the Holy Sacrament itself, none of us will come into contact with something else so sacred as another human being made in the image of God. Human beings are God's works of art. You know? To encounter another human being um, is, I, I can't remember who said this, but uh, you know, they said it's like a, an exercise in art appreciation. You know, and Sometimes that takes a little work. Sometimes someone tells you it's a great painting and you're not quite seeing it, but then it's explained to you and you go, well, you know what, actually, I get it now. Sometimes you get it right away. But but other people are worthy, not merely of respect, not merely of tolerance, of honor, right? An honor that dies to itself. Paul gives a nearly identical instruction in Philippians 2 when he says, this honor involves considering others better than yourself. How about that? So extending honor, you know, to to another person, loving them in that way, means eschewing honor in ourselves. It means dying to yourself. Instead of lauding yourself, you listen to others, Instead of asserting your achievements, you inquire into the lives of others. I had a seminary professor who said, look, there's two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. Um, you know, one person walks in a room and, and they are a here I am person. Here I am. I'm here. Everybody pay attention. Uh, that's one kind of person. The other kind of person is a there you are person. They walk into a room and they go, there you are. That was really, I think, wise. You know, there's something of honor in that, um, in considering others better than yourselves. Um, Paul expands on this by urging Christians not to be haughty, but associating with the lowly, never being wise in your own sight. You know, that, that's really at the heart of Christian love, isn't it? There's a self-forgetful quality. You know, and that's why Paul flows right into this, I think, third quality, which is a quality of devotion. Um... The exhortations in in verses 11 and 12 have to do with just that. This is a love that rejoices in hope. What does that mean? It means relying on God's faithfulness, not on your own faithfulness. It means relying on Him in in such a way that we're asking Him for patience in tribulation, that we're sober about the challenges that will come, will inevitably come with trying to love other people, which will drive you to pray, will give you actually constancy in prayer because... You know, you're realizing, you know, I am weak and he is strong. I've got to call on him all the time for help. Not relying on my relational skills, but relying on the Lord. That's why all these commands have to do, you know, with fundamentally with one's relationship with the Lord. And that's because relationships are wrenching. They are risky. They always require too much of us. Sooner or later, you know, if any of us are in an actual real relationship, your heart will be broken. You know, I would, in fact, I would say if that is not your experience, at least at some point or at some time or to some degree, it's kind of worth pondering if you have relationships of any depth at all. Or if you faked or curated your way socially, you know, creating a mutual admiration in society in which there is very little honesty, no transparency, hardly any challenge, and, and honestly, no affection. No real affection. relationships will break your heart. That's not to say that it's not possible to avoid brokenheartedness in our relationships, but what it will involve, C.S. Lewis described this, is doing something like putting your heart in a tomb. You know, a quiet, airless space that no one can get to, where it will never be shared, it will never be entrusted to anyone. And in so doing, you will, in, in fact, inflict a greater wound on your heart than you would ever endure in a relationship in which your heart is broken. Because the heart was made for others, made for a relationship with God, made for a relationship with other people, not to be entombed and protected and cold and lifeless. So Paul never says, protect your heart. He says instead, you know, plunge in. Uh, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Remember the hope of triumph through Jesus, praying to him, praising him all the time in relationships in which we are blessing others and not cursing them. Loving as those who have been loved creates love towards others, a love that is deeply connected, a love that is born of devotion, that dies to self, and finally is dynamic. Gospel love always involves more than feelings, but it's never without feeling. So Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And I mean, I looked at that, and I'm like, this is a wild thing that Paul is commanding feelings. You know, it's one thing to command an action. I can, I can kind of handle that, right? I mean, okay, give me something to do, and I'll go do it. But, you know, he's telling me to be sad in other people's sadness, to, to be joyful in their joy, and, you know, and I was kind of, I was always told, you know, the surest way to Get someone to not feel, a way, not feel a certain way is to demand that they feel that way. So how is any of this possible? Well, it's possible because there's more to Christian relationship than just sharing convictions or opinions or these pews. You know, it's possible because the gospel creates one new people, um, in which we don't just have, you know, a triumphant personal Christian journey, but one in which we share our lives. A common life in Christ, intimately, intentionally. Joys and sorrows aren't siloed off in the self, they're shared. Gospel conviction creates deep gospel connections so Christians, you know, are sharing their lives. They have people around their tables other than their families. They don't think of their stuff as their stuff. You know, they don't... um, uh, they have a common emotional life. That's why Paul can say that. He assumes it. So that we're liberated to share with God's people who are in need, to practice hospitality. And I think we need the exhortation. I think we need to press in this direction because we easily lapse into self-interest and into isolation. And, and the church is, is not immune. Um, it is possible for us to be here you know, every week and bounce around like free radicals instead of you know, nurturing the bonds that have been formed in Christ. I remember when I was planting a church and we were doing kind of some early, like, let's get to, get to know each other time. And I just had a circle of a dozen people in my living room. Probably 10 of them had been in the same church for a long time, some of them decades. And, and I think I just threw something out there like, you know, talk about the most important thing that's happened in your life. And one woman said, well, you know, the most important thing, the most significant thing in my life is, it was the loss of our child. The guy sitting next to her, who had been in church with her for years, turned to her and said, I never knew you lost a child. never knew that. It's possible to be together but not share life, not share the sorrows and rejoice in the joys together. You know, but what Paul's describing here is the fruit of a common life in Christ that's lived out in view of God's mercy, shaping, you know, how Christians love other Christians. But, you know, then we get into this whole other category of loving enemies. Paul's already kind of touched on this in verse 14. He said, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse them. But the last part of this passage is really a lot about this. It's kind of bookended with instructions about loving our enemies, Begins in verse 17, don't repay evil, don't repay anyone evil for evil, assuming like evil may have been done to you. And then he closes with this exhortation in verse 21, not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. You know, how's that for some relational advice? Not to be overcome by evil, but instead to overcome evil with good? Paul uses a a term here, it's a military term. This term for overcome means really to overpower. It's shock and awe. Paul is saying that there exists in the context of a relationship with those that you or I might regard as enemies, and I'm not going to get into it, but let's be honest, we all have them. We all have our enemies. There exists in the context of that relationship both the threat for you to be undone by evil, while at the same time there's the opportunity for you to destroy it. So what's the secret weapon in annihilating evil? Well, it's doing good to the one who's done evil to you. Hating the person who hates you always means they win and you lose. And the only way to actually defeat that, to decimate evil, is to forgive and love that person. And in doing that, two things happen. One is you strike a blow against evil's influence upon you, and the other is you have a chance to strike a blow against its influence on the person who's harmed you. And Paul uses this funny phrase to describe, to describe what just might happen in that context, if you actually love your enemy, if you die to yourself and love them with the love of Christ, he says, you, 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 know, you know what might happen? You might you heap might burning coals on their head. Which, you know, when I've dealt with someone who's done me wrong, nothing sounds sweeter, Right? <laughs> than dumping my Weber grill full of hot coals on top of their head. But that's not what Paul means. He's not giving you permission to barbecue your adversary. He's saying that when you forgive someone who's done you wrong, you are actually creating the conditions in which repentance just might occur. You're actually putting on display and dying to yourself something like the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, which brings life. You're you're a little picture of that. By dying to yourself and loving your neighbor in that way, you actually create an opening in which, through which, there's a possibility that conviction might be felt. They might feel shame for what they've done. They might regret it. You know, they, they may see that there's a better way to live. They may see that, in fact, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. And Paul's practical. I mean, he does say, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. We can't control relationships. I can't, I've got four kids. I can't control my kids. You know, and I've lived, I live in the same house with them. We can't make people do anything, but as far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on me, you know, pursue peace with your neighbors. And, and there's an important qualification. There are certainly situations in which the evil that has been done against us is so deep and so damaging and frankly dangerous that, the only, that you are left with no choice but having nothing to do with that person. I understand that. But as far as we're able, you know, love those who harm us, look for openings to serve them, find ways to help them, identify the needs and try to meet them, feed them when they're hungry, don't seek repayment, forgive and forgo the payback, don't avenge yourselves. That doesn't belong to you and me, it belongs to the Lord. All right, so there you have it, benediction time. Go forth. Well, we can't do that, can we? It's too hard. It's not that simple. In fact, if you're feeling like this is too much, um, if you're sitting there thinking about you know, relationships that you feel are far too gone, far too ugly, too much water under the bridge, if you feel like that's too much for you, here's the thing, you are absolutely right. It is. It is too much for you, and it is too much for me. You know, accept. Accept for God's mercy to us in Christ. Accept when we keep that mercy in view, when we rely on it, when we relish the gospel, when we see the heart moved and changed, and when we keep in view God's mercies, they open up incredible possibilities for change in us and in our relationships. When we see that God himself out of mercy with a deep, powerful, and you know, mysterious love for the lost and the loathsome allowed our evil to overcome him to the point of him being decimated on the cross. When we see that the Lord Jesus himself placed himself under the shock and awe of God's holy wrath towards sin which should have fallen on you and on me. When we see that that was taken for us and that we were instead given life and affection and family, that enables the dead heart to begin to beat with new life and to to be driven by a new motive and to be moved in entirely different ways and to see that you know, not only that, but God did that so that hungry people like us would be, continue to be fed with the food of eternal life, that thirsty people like us would be satiated by rivers of life springing up within us that are inexhaustible by the Spirit. You know, that we've been given grace, that we've received a kindness, that, you know, the kindness of God that has led us to repentance, new possibilities, new power. You see, in Christ, we are loved with an everlasting love, a love born of eternal devotion, a love. Deeply connecting us to the, to the heart of God and to one another, a love that died that we might live, a dynamic love in which we can always say, no matter what we do, no matter what may come our way, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, your love is powerful. Your word says, in fact, that gospel love is a that, that, that gospel love is a power even greater than that which caused creation to come into existence. And so, Lord, we um we need help. Um, you know, we we simply cannot navigate even our most affectionate relationships apart from your help. And Lord, you have called us to so much, but you have also not demanded of us more than you have. more than you are willing to give and provide, you have unleashed the treasury of heaven and poured it out into our hearts in Christ. And so, Lord, would we leave here as those relying on Jesus more strongly, Uh, Lord, as a people devoted, as a people connected to the heart of God, as a people who are, you know, looking at the world and at ourselves with the view of God's mercies. So, Lord, would you send us here into Santa Fe and beyond with um, hearts changed by the gospel, um, to the end that we would love others, uh, love one another and love others in this city with the heart of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.